0: Hello coaches, welcome back to another episode of the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Mullins. Today, my guest is Todd Wodkowski. Todd is wrapping up his 14th season as the head men's coach at Case Western Reserve University. His team is enjoying one of the best seasons in program history, winning the ITA Division 3 Men's National Indoor Championships earlier this spring and currently sit at number two in the ITA Division 3 team rankings. In this podcast, we discuss his transition from coaching one gender at the NCAA Division 1 level to coaching two genders at Division 3, his approach to managing large roster sizes, capitalizing on early successes in your tenure as a head coach, and much, much more. Rod Wachowski, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very appreciative for the opportunity and obviously very happy to share as much as i can through the journey i had to you know help others through their through theirs as well
0: thank you todd i know uh you're in the thick of things right now like any coach i'm speaking to you're having a great season and and hope that continues but usually i'm going to uh i i end with rapid fire questions but i'm going to start with one of our rapid fire questions today which is what is the best piece of advice you have received from anyone in your life it doesn't have to be tennis related
1: Yeah. And that's a, that's an easy one for me. Uh, I had one coach when I was growing up, my whole, my whole tennis life, you know, I started playing tennis when I was roughly nine or 10 years old and um, Keith Venz was, was his name. And I feel like every day that I'm coaching, uh, I'm living in honor of him. Actually, he passed away on my 18th birthday, uh, senior year of high school when I was still kind of going through deciding where I was going to go to college and play tennis. Never forget that I, I was at the Midwest Closed, the mi- Midwest Winter Closed, and had a great tournament, probably one of the best tournaments I had in juniors, and and came home only to find out, you know, that he had passed in a car accident. And from that point on, I, I really felt like no matter what I was going to do with my life, I I wanted to live, you know, in honor of him. You know, I was an adopted kid who um, my parents divorced at an early age, and. He was really, really important in in my development. And he had 100 uh, golden rules to live by, Uh, but number one on his list was share the wealth. And and that means a lot. That means a lot as far as sharing financial wealth, sharing wealth of knowledge. There's so many different ways to interpret that. He didn't necessarily mean sharing the financial wealth. What he meant was sharing the wealth of knowledge and sharing the wealth of passion and energy. And that's just, you know, anyone who knows me (laughs) knows that my thing is energy. And, you know, no matter what's happening, no matter what hardships you're going through, no matter what's going on, you always have a choice, you know, to look look at things through a positive light. And that's something that Keith did amazingly well. And his son, Casey and I are extremely close. So I'm just so, I'm so proud of all the things that have happened, obviously, in in the sport of tennis, you know, that I've been able to accomplish in the past, you know, 14 years, just kind of in honor of him and his family. So that's one thing. And then the the other bit of advice that that was just so incredibly mind-blowing came from Dave Fish, actually, the former head coach at Harvard. I remember when I was 26, 27 years old, and I got hired at Case Western um, at, at 24 years old, after finishing my MBA, I was supposed to go into business. It was 2008. I finished my MBA. I get hired by a, one of the three biggest construction management firms in the country. But as, as anyone would know who was aware of what was happening in 2008, we had a great recession. And because of that recession they froze hiring and I had to figure it out, you know, and, and one thing that I knew was I always had tennis, you know, something that I a skill that I had and my coach had taught me how to teach tennis since the time I was 14 years old. And I would always be able to fall back on that. No matter what happened, I always had tennis. So my point here is, uh, that the recession happens, and I start looking at tennis jobs, and I get the job at Case. And I went to the ITA coaches convention in Naples, Florida, and this was 2010. And I was fortunate enough to have lunch with Greg Patton, Dave Fish, and I think it was uh, I think it was Tim and Corwin, um, you know, who who used to be a national championship coach at Kalamazoo we sat down and we had lunch and and I said to Dave Fish, how can I be the next coach at Harvard? What what can I do to get to the Ivy League? To get a job like that? And Dave said very simply, you put your bags down, you make where you're at the Harvard. And so the piece of advice that he gave me was put your bags down, make where you are a destination. You do all the right things, want to go to you you will be the destination I don't know what it was about the way he worded that and the way that he said it but it clicked and I was like you know what you're right if you put your head down and you just do a good job and you work really hard at where you're at people will find you 2000 and uh 2000 it must have been 16 my best friend Brian Kanieko who's the you know the head coach at UCF he left Brown, and um, I, I didn't even put in an application, but guess what? The phone rang. I had an opportunity um, to, go to, to go to Brown. Um, ended up actually getting offered the job. You know what? This has become so much of a destination that I thought being here at Case is more valuable than going there. You know, even with a Division One Ivy League opportunity. And I look back at that decision, you know, with what I was doing with uh, starting a family with my wife and having our first child. And obviously, I have zero regrets I me mean, now that we've won a national championship. And, you know, we've kind of climbed to the top of the mountain. I, I couldn't be more proud of, of what Dave said to me and just being able to be in a position where this is now a destination. I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable city place to grow a tennis program. You know, and I look back to those words that he said to me at that lunch, you know, and I thought, man, what an opportunity I had to sit with those guys and just take in everything that they were saying. I mean, Greg Patton was, you know, one of the godfathers of college tennis, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, thank God I had that opportunity to listen to these guys talk.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that... (laughs) And that's the thing, Todd, as I speak with younger coaches, sometimes I, I feel like there is a lack of patience, right? They're they're looking around quickly, they expect things to happen on, on a faster timeline. And it's sometimes when you I guess let go of that timeline that things actually end up happening quicker than than you might think. But I think when you're 22, 23, 24, you think that maybe life's getting away from you and I should be moving up faster. And and so I'm really glad you shared that story, Todd. I think that'll be impactful for a lot of young coaches, especially as we go into the summer and they're kind of deciding, well, should I be looking for that next job? Should I be going from a head coach to an assistant or assistant to head coach or whatever it is. And so uh, sometimes the grass isn't always greener,
1: right? Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. Very, very good.
0: Well, so, yeah, going back into your background a little bit, you shared a little bit there, but your, your, your playing and your initial coaching experience was obviously at the Division One level. So did you initially expect to stay at D1? Like you talked about maybe wanting to go uh, coach at the Ivy League. Um, but, uh, you know, talk us through how you ended up at Case.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, you know, like I said, again, um, it was 2008. Uh, I had been at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, you know, because I, because I had come from Ohio state, you know, rewind, rewind back to, you know, when my coach passed away my senior year, his son was at Toledo. That made it a very, very good, uh, easy decision for me to just go to Toledo because losing him in that car accident was just a blow that, that, you know, I was not ready to handle at that age and maturity. Well, you know, I went and played for Al Wormer at Toledo, who's still there. He's an amazing coach, amazing person, uh, so much to learn from him. He really focuses on the player development off the court, uh, developing the person. And I'm incredibly thankful for him to be so patient with me in that process of going from 18 to 20 years old. And like I said, just having been blown a pretty big, devastating loss in my life, um, he was very patient with me and and helped me mature a lot. You know, I was lucky when I was at Toledo to get some wins. I think Wurtzman and, and Connor Casey were were top five doubles team in the country when, when my partner and I beat them. And I thought, you know, I'm I'm mature. I've grown up now. I was looking for a bit of an academic upgrade and a bit of a tennis upgrade um, now that I had kind of my feet on the ground. And um, luckily enough, Ty gave me an opportunity to come play uh, play for the Buckeyes. I went through those years and, and, you know, I did, I started out as a math major. I was going to be a, you know, my goal was to maybe be a a math teacher in college, but really my tennis was the focus. I I wanted to play some futures and see if I was going to be good enough. And by going to Ohio state, I could learn real quick. I mean, hell, if I'm not one of the top players at at Ohio state, I'm probably not going to make it on tour. So I just dove into that, realized, Hey, you know, my best contribution to this team is going to be as a leader and an off the court guy. I, I wasn't good enough uh, to crack that lineup consistently. Um, so I did everything I possibly could off the court to learn about the uh, dynamics of an organization, you know, kind of lowered my degree to middle school education, basically. Cause I realized I wasn't going, going to do math at the college level. I wasn't smart enough, uh, you know, advanced theory and this stuff was just getting too tough for me. So I remember my senior year, um, Ty got a phone call from the Citadel and, he had a friend down there that said, hey, do you have any guys graduating that are looking to get their master's degree? And Ty, you know, recommended me and, and said, you know, this guy's great. He's a leader. Um, I think he'd be great. So I went to the Citadel thinking, OK, I'm going to go into business. Um, I'm going to get my MBA and, you know, I'm going to go into go into business. But man, it was it awesome at the Citadel being a coach, being a coach. And I was the assistant coach, but the head coach, when I got there, said, hey, man, he was a southern guy. He said, This fall, you're gonna take them to all the tournaments and and they're all yours, man. I, I got faith in you, you can do it. <laughs> I was like, Whoa, uh okay. Um, how do I get the van? What do I do? You know. But um the cool story is our number one doubles team ended up getting the first national ranking in school history. We went to we went to regionals and we beat the number one team from North Carolina, the number one team from William and Mary, the number one team from, uh, what was the third team we beat? It was uh, must have been Virginia, I think. And then we ended up losing in the, in the finals of regionals. Oh, it's Duke, actually. Sorry, it wasn't Virginia. We beat the number one team from Duke. Citadel. Like, Citadel? Like, what is happening here? You know, so I think I got the attention of Sam Paul, and I got the attention of some other guys and, and made some friends there in the south. You know, Chuck, Chuck McEwen, Chuck Creasy. I think these guys saw like, oh, this guy was a Buckeye and now he's doing a great job with Citadel. And they became great advocates for me. And, you know, I still thought I was going into business, but it was like, man, I, I really like this. We're, we're winning matches. We're having the best season Citadel had had. And, you know, Lord knows how long. And so I think as soon as the economy, you know, hit the skids, I was like, man, let's, let's do this. Let's look for some tennis jobs much you know because the economy was bad uh, i was lucky that i got a second interview a case to be honest with you david i wasn't in the final three mm. old ad for an update and he said ah oh, we've reached our final three we thought you were a little too young for this job at the time i'm thinking like isn't that age discrimination like in a way but you know maybe he should have just said more experience <laughs> but um <laughs> No, to be a to be a head coach at 25 of head men's and women's team I get where he was coming from I mean hell I was immature no doubt about it thankfully I got the opportunity and had some great people around me to kind of coach me through it you know things to do things not to do so to answer your question in a roundabout way I mean I didn't even know that I was going to D1 D3 or what I was going to I just I just was like thankful for the opportunity to grow a program I remember I was head men's and women's coach for a team making less than 40 K a year. in mm-hmm. 2008. If that's the case. Obviously, you know, if your goal in life is to raise a family, mine was, you know, that was the number one thing I want to be somewhere where I'm going to be able to, to provide for a family and be a great dad and be a great husband. Um, I knew that that was going to have to do something else, run camps, give lessons, do something. So, you know, that's kind of how it all got started and, and, and arrived here in Cleveland.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like when you're at the Citadel, you were thrown in the deep end there a little bit in the fall and given a lot of responsibility, but then you take over a Case. You're responsible for two teams now, like you said. So how did you make that adjustment from being an assistant managing one program to being a head coach of managing two programs?
1: So I think the biggest thing that saved me here was my business degree. Hmm. Um, I think my business degree, whether or not I knew what the heck I was talking about or not, I went into the interview with a five-year plan and a 10-year plan and a PowerPoint and a black suit, and here's what we're going to do, and this is what we're going to do. And I look back at that 10-year plan, and I'm like, I did not know what I was talking about, (laughs) but... I look back now, yeah, I did. I I don't know. I just kind of looked at it like um, from a business perspective. I just said, okay, this is a business. We're going to run it like a business. We're going to operate at the highest level of standards. You know, and I think that that's, that really helped me. And then obviously taking, I, I think I had both ends of the spectrum in my experience of playing. At Toledo, I think Coach Al is incredible off the court at developing human beings. And I think that other end of the spectrum, I think Ty is unbelievable at developing a work ethic and a drive in a 18 to a 22 year old, you know, player that like, I mean, this guy operates on an energy level that's, you know, incredible, you know, so I learned and I took a little bit from both and understanding, you know, how to develop a, a, a culture of a program and then if it weren't, if it weren't for the fact that I took so much pride in being a business person running a business, there's no way that I would have been able to to handle the men's and the women's teams, especially with no, no assistant at all, you know, mm-hmm. uh, no paid anything that saved me. Uh, so I. I really do think there's a value in that higher education and, and, and furthering your education, uh, no doubt about it, because uh, I just applied some business principles is basically all there, there was to that.
0: And when you say you're applying business principles, are these specific systems that you put in place, KPIs that you were monitoring? Can you expand a little bit on, on some of those tools that you implemented that helped?
1: Yeah, uh, from a recruiting standpoint, it was just all about kind of finding Finding the right players that were under the radar, because if you don't, if you don't have a great program, you're not going to attract the you know the five star recruit right away. Mm-hmm. So what you have to do is you got to get your current players better first. And when you get them better, you can attract better recruits because they're looking at the level of play of your current players. So we started doing a ton of uh, data collection on return percentage, serve percentage things like that. And then we started doing a lot of data collection on the Delta of a recruit from freshman year to senior year and, and just trying to find great trends in recruits that, that are approaching their best tennis, but haven't been found yet because they're still a little bit underranked. So mm-hmm. I think our sweet spot was more like guys that were 300 to 600 in the country, but had the potential in the next two years based on their Delta to get to top to be like a four-star recruit. Mm-hmm. Um and if you go back in the 12 years of doing this, I mean even currently our number 5 and our number 6 players are three-star recruits, but if you look at when they graduated they were like as high as 120, 130 in the country which would be a four-star recruit. It's just they weren't there during the recruiting process. So um that's something that has continued to be a staple of our program. And I, I can't think like Ben player. And he was a, a really big time uh, help Nick or Turkner, as far as these guys are much smarter than I, they would put the Excel sheets together. They would, they would help me with this, you know, as volunteers just locating the right amount of talent. So I think that's a good example. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and just in terms of the recruiting and and trying to find that sweet spot of that player who's on the way up, what are some of the, i guess tangible aspects of their game that you're you're looking for that you believe they need to be you know uh, at a certain level and and maybe what are some of the intangible off court elements that you're looking at that you're focusing on and valuing in that process
1: yeah great question um it it'd be dumb to kind of classify like a physical size or a physical stature as like a attribute you're looking for um at our level, at least, because we still play with that, and we still play eight-game pro sets at Division three. But to be honest with you, if I was at Division one, I, I would answer this question a completely different way. I'm looking at, and I remember like our team when we won the Big Ten my senior year in 2006. It, it, we we really didn't even have many guys above six foot. Now then, what year? I, maybe you could tell me. Did they change to no ad?
0: Uh, 2015, I believe.
1: Okay. So I remember a very distinct change in the type of player that like Ty and a lot of other programs were, were bringing in to be quite honest. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not that hard to figure out if you're playing with no ad and you can reach back and hit 125 mile an hour serve. Mm -hmm. Um, or if you're playing a six game set with no ad and you could find two guys that are six, three, six, four. I mean, Look at the success that Michigan is having right now. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, it is believable because Coach Steinberg's amazing and he knows what he's doing. And Coach Becker's amazing and he knows what he's doing. But like look at their guys. Like they're all seven foot wingspan, six foot four. A lot of indoor tennis. And it's no ad set to six. So what are you saying here? Like you need to be able to win in the first, like, you know, two to three shots of the point if I was them, you know, if I was in, in those shoes, I, I would be looking for those athletes, like six foot long, lanky athletic. And I'm still looking for that here because we play a lot of indoor tennis, but really to me, because we're playing with that and we're playing full third sets and matches can go five or six hours, you know, to be completely honest. I mean, the number one thing I look at is the scores of the matches our recruits are playing. What's hmm. their third set record. Are they, you know, are they have 75% winning percentage in third sets? And are they losing matches like two and six, three and five? Or are they losing matches four and oh, four and one? Are they retiring um, in second sets? Are they retiring in third sets? Are they defaulting? And, you know, a recruit will come on campus who's retired in four matches in the last six months. And it'll be literally the first question I ask like, hey, what? So what's happening with your you know, retirements and, you know, what do you, what do you think is going on? And -hmm. I'll just put them on the spot and just make them explain, you know, what they think it is, you know, and I have a current sophomore on my team that had that blatant conversation with him even during his sophomore year of high school and just said, like, if you can, if you continue on this trajectory, there's no way that a coach would want to take a a risk on putting you out there with a match on the line, knowing that you're retiring from half the matches that you play. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that, I, mean, I think that's physical attributes you're looking for, but also result attributes that you're looking for as well.
0: Mm-hmm. No, very good. Thanks for for sharing that. Um, so I hate sharing you... that because I don't really
1: want to give away a lot of it. You know, so many <laughs> things that we're doing, but
0: yeah. But yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. The coach still needs to put in the work, right? And and uh, identify all of those and keep track of all of those things. And and um, so. Yeah, no, it's great. Thank you for sharing. Um, So when you took over both the men's and women's programs at Case Western, they're, I think, both close to the the bottom of the conference. What, you know, you talked a little bit about your black suit and your 10-year plan, but what are some of the things you believe you did well in the first 12 months laying those foundations to set up the success you were going to have later? Because again, we're going to have a lot of coaches this year that are transitioning to their taking over a new program, right? And What are some of those things that they should maybe consider doing in the first six, 12 months that will set them up for later success?
1: Easy, easy. I love this question too, because it's business. Um, You know, I love these books, these business books, like Good to Great, Outliers. You know, they really help to outline how it's about getting the right people on the bus and then figuring out where you're going instead of trying to say where you're going um, before you get the people on the bus. And it's cliche at this point, I think a lot of people who study higher, higher education business understand that you, you've got to get the right people on the bus. I mean, if you pay attention to pro sports, it's a lot of the same, a lot of the same rhetoric, uh, especially in the NFL, where you have so many people on a team and so many different moving parts, you know, the culture becomes incredibly important. So number one thing is setting the culture, you have to set the standard of the culture first. Have to figure out what that culture is, because I mean, everybody's in a different position. For me, I was at a mid-major Division One. I, I was at a BCS Division One, and then I was at a BCS, or and then I was at a mid-major Division One again. But it was a military school. That's a little bit different. And then I'm going to one of the top forty academic schools in the country. So, you know, I, I've been in a school with thirty thousand, sixty thousand. 4,000 and now 6,000. So I I think those experiences really helped me. Number one thing that really helped me at Citadel, their days are not easy. Like Hmm. it's just from six in the morning until 5.00 PM. That life is not fun. It is not fun. It's not great. You're getting barked at you're, you're getting, I mean, it's just tough, 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 tough. And you're living in the barracks. And I mean, man, do you learn work ethic and resilience, you know, going through that. So what I wanted to do there with the head coach that was there at the time, it, you know, it was the culture wasn't, it wasn't fun. You know, it was like, man, they're getting barked at all day. And then he was barking at him too, you know, really being hard on him. And, and I thought like, gosh, like, can we, we got to have some fun here. I mean, this is a game, it's a sport, you know, like this is coming from a guy who, like I said, I mean, I had already dealt with some hardships for sure. I mean, you know, I'm really, really kind of proud of where my family has come from. I and mean, my grandfather, um, my dad's dad, you know, he survived Dachau, um, you know, made it to the United States to work in the steel mills in order to be, provide a good living for a family. You know, so I think it's been instilled in me as a first generation kid um, mm-hmm. from the get go that like there's a lot of tougher things going on in this world. And there's a lot of things that are happening. This is a sport. It's a game. It's it's meant to teach us life skills. So it has to be hard. It needs to be tough. But it's all dude, you got to have fun. Like you got to really enjoy this. So I tried to make the Citadel guys understand that this needs to be the most energetic, the most fun part of your day. This two hours, this two hours has got to be the best part of your day. And if you act like it as the coach and you're, you're like, oh, God, I love being here. Like, this is just awesome. We love each other. We're having fun. We're pumping it up. We're, that's got to be the thing that gets set right away. And I'm really thankful and proud of that first recruiting class. Nick Howe, Alex Solov, Richard Brunson, Kyle Gerber, Kat Evers, Erica Lim, Emily Fam. Those seven, two of them are married now to each other. All best friends, they were all the best men in each other's weddings. they're all married now. they were all bridesmaids in each other's wedding. They've all been in each other's weddings. When I told them they needed to love each other more than anything they have ever tried to love besides their immediate family because they are now each other's immediate family. Um, they really took it to heart, and it was easy to set the culture from then because uh, you know it's just they just bought into that and they just said we have to. This time on the court, and the men and women practiced together at the time, you know, CEO, Rohan Patel, he's now vice president of Dollar Shave Club. He was my captain for three years. He set the tone with with that freshman group and teaching them how to be mature and and handle the academic load and handle the tennis load. But, man, did they take care of the family aspect um, by doing everything they did every day, all day together. I can't thank them enough for setting that standard. And to be honest with you, David, at National Indoors this past February, every every one of them was there. They were all there. And when we won that tournament, it was like no one in the world was happier than them. Yeah. It was like they felt like they won it, you know, themselves. Uh, and their impact is so amazing still, like, with how much they try to teach the current players what it's like to play for each other and to play with a love for each other. Um, can't thank them enough because, you know, it wasn't anything I did. it was it was just them setting that culture right from the get-go. And then from there, it was just so easy, you know, Uh, minus a little bit of a a, a two-year, we had a a kind of a two-year blip where it seemed like we, we didn't have the leadership thing. Right. Um, But, you know, maybe we'll go into that in a little bit uh, thanks to my fifth year senior, but, but yeah, I think that answers the question in, in the first six to 12 months. Yep.
0: Yeah. Well then going, going from there, Todd, because obviously um, you shifted in 2013. You're just responsible for the 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 men's program. Um, You know, we can talk about that in a little bit. But then, how does that transition go from you know establishing the culture to then trying to capitalize on those early successes you have? Whether it's establishing a culture, whether it's the relationships that you're building with the players, whether it's them getting a little bit better you're having that um you know you've succeeded in terms of laying the foundations does anything change from there as you start to have more success or is it just doubling down on on everything
1: that you've done well initially probably just doubling down i mean really it was like knocking on the door knocking on the door knocking on the door you know climbing climbing i mean you ask what i did in the first six to twelve months just to go back to that again Mm -hmm. real quick uh I didn't have a computer set up yet in my office on the first day I went into another coach's office and I printed off the regional rankings of the top 20 teams in the region of which we were not ranked in the region and we were dead last in our conference. And I emailed from my, uh, it was a blackberry. I, I can't, I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. I emailed every single coach that was in the top 20 and, and you're on, you're on the web browser on your blackberry at the time, trying to pull up the coach's email on the website. It must've taken me literally a nine to five day just to email every top 20 coach. And I basically said, name the date, name the time, name the place. We'll come to you. I don't care. We'll play anybody just to figure out what the heck is going on. Like how good are these teams? What do they have? What are they doing? So thank you to all the coaches that were willing to play us, even though we were horrible And all the coaches that were willing to keep playing us after we got better and weren't, you know, necessarily afraid to, you know, take a loss. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we did that. And I think it was like, let's just go play anybody, anytime, anywhere. Anybody, anytime, anywhere. A-T-O-W. Anybody, anytime, anyone, anywhere. We'll play. Because we're here to play. Like, you can't be afraid of winning or losing matches. You just got to go play. So in 2013, like you said, I mean, we had gotten a recruit. His name is CJ Krimble. He was the first men's tennis player in NCAA history to win the top 10 award. And the NCAA top 10 award goes to the student athlete off the court, on the court. So uh, people that have won it since, only one tennis player, Ty Kwiatkowski at UVA. World-class citizens, people that are not only winning national championships and being all Americans, but people that are winning national championships off the court too. Yeah. He was a three-star recruit. I mean, he was a nothing uh, under, you know, really underlooked. And he was the one that popped. He was a first you know, real big time three-star recruit that we got that popped. Um, and we had Will Drugas who, who was good. I mean, he was a top 50 player, but CJ ascended to number one in the country in division three as a three-star and that was the changing moment really to be honest with you and it wasn't it was we didn't change anything we did it wasn't because I took over just men and was able to spend more time on one program it was we got lucky on a recruit that popped and you know from there we weren't down 0-1 at the start of every match anymore uh which we were in 9-10-11-12 you know that was the game changer to be honest it was a huge huge game changer uh nothing changed i mean it was just that we got lucky with that recruit
0: yeah okay well just you know i only coach division 1 and i'm always in awe of coaches like yourself who manage these really large rosters and you know especially when you started out and you're managing both men's and women's programs by yourself no no assistant coaches um i just, i can't wrap my head around that and i know a lot of other coaches will struggle a lot with that early in their career and and even though you're just doing the men now i think i counted you have about 18 players on your roster so yep. what advice do you have for coaches in terms of managing that size roster kind of trying to keep everybody happy to a certain extent and giving them the the love that you want to provide them or, or at least make them feel loved
1: easy um hate to give away these uh, these things I hate to give it away, but you know, it is what it is. I mean, it's, you got to execute it in the first in, uh, in the first place. But I'll tell you the same thing I tell recruits, you know, that are wondering whether or not they're going to get playing time when they come here. The Goal is for each year. I know that throughout this podcast, I've talked a lot about love and family. Like I said uh, before, you need to love each other. You got to play for each other. So 18-year-old coming from home. Doing their laundry, feeding themselves for the first time. It's tough, you know, like being away from home. If you have four people in that class, you have an immediate family. You got four brothers and sisters that that you can share that experience with, which makes it a lot easier to talk with people about what you're struggling with, what you're going through. So those four people in your class, I'd hate to have one kid in a recruiting class. I would hate to have that. I don't ever want to have that. Because then who, who do they relate to? Who, who can they share with? Um, you know, and you could say maybe another athlete from another team or something like that. But at the end of the day, no one's going through what you're going through, um, you know, so on your own team. So I think having four is important, very important. Okay, having four, and then you multiply that by four. So that gets you to 16. And then COVID happened. So we have some grad, we have some grad players that stayed a fifth year but in any given year, I would love to have 16. It works really well for multiple reasons. It gives you an immediate family. The sophomores are your first cousins and the juniors and seniors are your second cousins. Now you love all of them because you're all, they're all your family, but your, your second cousins live kind of like down the road and your first cousins live a block over and your immediate family live in the house with you. Like you guys live together. So you have, uh, you have your, your, Media family, you love them, your first cousins and your second cousins, that makes your 16, that has nothing to do with tennis. It's just having a family here to support you when you're away from home and people that you share a love and a passion with meaning, uh, tennis in school. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then from a functional standpoint, um, if you have, if you have 16 guys, uh, you know, or, or women, um, Understand the way things work in division three is we only get them for like five, six, seven weeks in the fall right. and then thirteen, fourteen weeks in the spring. We can't work with our players basically in November, December, January, June, July, August. Uh do the math. That's fifty percent of the year. Mm-hmm. So what do you do like, you know, in November, December, January? Well, I know what our guys do. They, they split up into uppers and lowers and they go on Friday night and Saturday night and they, they have eight and eight, which is enough to make two teams and they play knockout matches. Like they, they, they go and they practice playing dual matches against each other, you know, and, and they love doing that. That's the social for them. That's the fun for them is that if you're not someone in the lineup, you're still getting 50 matches a year, Hmm. you know, And that's the culture shock that people go through. The senior year of high school, they'll play an average senior in high school. If they play high school tennis, they'll probably somewhere from 70 to 100 matches. And then they come into college and they don't make the starting lineup. And they just went through a calendar year of playing 35 matches. I mean, talk about like how you could get worse very quickly. So what we're doing is we're providing that match play for them while also uh, providing more hitting partners a larger training environment. I mean, think about it. What, what junior tennis player in high school wouldn't want to have, you know, say you're like a 10 or an 11 UTR and you're going to college or you're an 11 or a 12 UTR and you could be practicing with 15 other 11 or 12 UTR players on a daily basis. Like rising tide lifts all boats. I mean, is an understatement, you know, like, in juniors you're lucky to maybe have two or three players at your level that you're training with. And, and then, you know, it's like, well, now you're hitting with the same person, you know, four or five days a week, every week. Um, you know, what a cool opportunity to train with a whole bunch of other players and get to know other people from diverse backgrounds. You know, I mean, I don't know how the heck people do it with eight or nine people, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I, so I would flip the question back on you. Like,
0: how do you do it?
1: Like, I don't know how to do it that way. Like, um, so
0: yeah. 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 Um, well, one of the last questions I have for you, Todd, is just around self-limiting beliefs. Cause you know, you come across as very positive, very passionate. we talked about kind of some of the influences in, in your life. Uh, you get to case Western, like I said, the bottom of the conference, um, not ranked in, in your region. You're willing to take on any team, any place, like you said, um, you know, as I speak with coaches and I struggle with this a little bit as well, um, you know, it's easy to put self-limiting beliefs on yourself and what's possible for, for the program. So h- how do you encourage coaches to think bigger and, and what might be possible for their program going forward?
1: Yeah, great, great question. I think you have me stumped, to be honest with you. I am very proud. I mean, to be honest with you, I definitely am very proud of, of all the players that have come through this program just fighting against you know, the odds, right? I mean, academically in our conference, I mean, we're fighting against top 10, top 20 academic schools in the country. No one has scholarships to offer at all. You know, we're trying to convince four and five star kids to to come to our school instead of Emory, Chicago, Amherst, Williams, Middlebury, Carnegie, you know, I mean, these are world-class institutions that we're recruiting against. And like you said, when I got here, I mean, we were the joke. We were, I mean, case was, it was nothing. I mean, it was on the bottom of tennis, on the bottom of academics. It was, you know, relative to our marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, um, it takes relentless, relentless optimism and positivity on a daily basis to never make an excuse and never feel sorry for yourself. And I'll remember like this kind of goes back to your rapid fire question about like really good advice. Something just popped back into my head. I, I'll be totally honest with you. I don't know that I've thought about this probably in six years. So I'm really appreciative that you asked this question because it just made me think of something. I remember Roger Fulmer and I, and he's a Wash U coach. OK, so when I took this job, he had just won a national championship at Wash U and he played at Purdue. And so we shared a lot in common, you know. He he played at Purdue. I played at Ohio State. He took over a D three program, kind of high academic, a lot of challenges. Washu was not good at the time, and um, we struck up a good relationship. And I remember we went to the coaches' convention, and he let me sleep on his floor because we didn't have a budget for you know for that. So I got to stay in his room. I think it was because he was national coach of the year, to be honest, and his room was paid for. By the ITA. And then he let me sleep on the, you know, the, the pullout or whatever it was, to be honest, you know, a lot of people did that coach Satchery did that for me from Notre Dame uh, for Naples one year. And uh, you know, I thankful obviously that that Roger was willing to do that. What he said to me was, I think I was just complaining um, about like, you know, what we don't have and what we, you know, what we can't do. And I remember he said to me, this is vivid, just like the Dave fish conversation. He goes, Todd, everybody has something. Nobody wants to hear it. You know, I was like, yeah, thank you for like checking me there. You know, my wife is the best at this. You know, I'll, I'll start complaining uh, or moaning about something or exaggerating something. And she will really quickly tell me that I'm, you know, out out, of my skis, you know, so um, I, I really think that it's true. You got to be optimistic relentlessly. And you can't, you really can't make excuses. And you got to teach these young kids not to either. Like nobody wants to hear you complain. Nobody wants to hear, your, you know, what excuses you're making. And, and on top of it, no one wants to hear you talk about yourself all the time. So I try to teach my guys like just, you know, no excuses. Don't Don't whine. Don't complain. Don't talk about yourself. Ask other people how they're doing. Ask them what you know, what, 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 how life is going for them. And, you know, that, that advice was, was definitely something that, that gets you through. And there are some things you can't control, David. Like I said, I mean, there were a lot of things that happened in my upbringing that were tough, you know, like starting with the divorce and then when my coach died and even now my wife and I are, you know, like we just found out two weeks ago before national indoors that, you know, we had lost, you know, lost a, a pregnancy and, we're going through testing. And as it turns out, I've got a, you know, like a chromosomal, a chromosomal translocation, which explains why our three-year-old that we have now, we're like literally outlier statistics and lucky to even have a healthy child to begin with because of what's going on. I mean, like stuff's always happening to people. Like people are struggling with things. So just, it's okay. Like it'll be all right. Figure it out. Find a way. Like, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the world. Like let's just try to do our best every day to, to be as positive as we can. And it'll feel that much better to overcome. It's easy. It wouldn't be fun, you know, like to mm-hmm. accomplish something. So yeah, I mean, relentless optimism. I mean, it's just, it's just gotta be a thing. You just gotta stay positive and just always try to figure it out, try to figure it out.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great, Todd. What a, what a wonderful message. And I I got goosebumps several times as you've been talking throughout this podcast. So thank you for sharing that, that optimism with me today. Um, Okay. A couple of other quick rapid fire questions. I know we're running short on time, but what is, is there a book, a podcast article, passage poem that's influenced you in your journey to date?
1: Yeah. Like I think I mentioned a couple right outliers, good to great, great by choice. Mm-hmm. The Talent Code, those are great books. Podcasts, yes, definitely have become more popular since I did my MBA. The World is Flat, that that was a good one um, that I read during business school. The, and then podcast-wise, what you guys do, I listen to all the podcasts and what Crack Rackets does, I listen to all the podcasts. I mean, it, like, kudos to you, David, for setting up these podcasts for us to have opportunities to listen to other coaches speak. And kudos to, you know, what Alex Ruskin does, too. I mean, I hate to, like, I, I have no idea. I could be, like, promoting another thing. No, on. No, they're
0: <laughs> great partners of ours. So, absolutely. Okay, so away. we're all
1: a team. All right, so we're all yeah. a team. So I can talk great about Dalton and, and Alex, too. Of course. I'm going to be dead serious with you. When I drove the van up to Ann Arbor to play Michigan last weekend, I listened to Roditi. I listened to Borendame and I listened to Steinberg back to back to back in a three hour drive Mm -hmm. and everything that I got out of those three, you know, if there was an underlying thing that I got out of those three interviews, um, there's a lot of coaches that can kind of talk a lot and say nothing. And I've learned to like, know when I'm getting a genuine answer and when I'm getting like, just like a blanket answer, that's like saying something without saying anything. Mm-hmm. Those are some genuine guys, like really genuine, and they, you know, they were very genuine in their answers. And you know, the underlying thing out of those three was like also a similar uh, thing that I have here is they could just sit in the bleachers and watch their team and just have the greatest time in their life. Mm-hmm. And to create an environment and energy around your team that you could just sit back and just watch and be like, man, this is just fun to watch these guys play. I think they all said it. And so I learned so much from listening to them talk and, and listen to both podcasts. I don't have anything else coming into my brain right away. And I know it's rapid fire, so I'll just leave it at that.
0: <laughs> okay. Next question. Is there a drill that you like to do with your team or, or you, maybe you did with, say, Ty Tucker that helped you as a player?
1: There is, no doubt. It's not intuitive at all. I did it uh, actually, I, I don't know if it, the video is posted anywhere, but
0: yeah, I'll post that in the, um, in, in the, in the notes for the podcast. So people can, can click
1: on that. Oh, so like, so from the convention, the drills I did like in that session are actually on the, yeah. they're online. I can go watch them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Go watch Howard Joffe. Same hour presentation. He was incredible. Like yeah. the way he talked about how they deal with deuce points and no ad scoring and playing critical points, and then the way that... Um, oh my gosh, I feel so bad. There, there was a coach. There was either a JUCO. I think it was a JUCO coach during that session that that Phil talked Girardi. about critical points. Phil, he talked about yeah. So like he talked about critical points, and if a player had 40 and they lost, then they lost everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Literally, I've been doing that drill like this whole season.
0: Oh, good. Okay. So I guess there's
1: another thing, like go to the convention, like just go. It's so, so worth it to just soak in the conversations, both in the on-court sessions and in the off-court sessions. Like it's just where all of this information that I've been talking about this whole time, honestly, is is coming from. So, yeah. yeah, the drill I did in there—it's—it's it's simple. It's just doubles defensive is what we call it. It's—it's it's all day long. Love yeah. it. Great energy. So fun.
0: Okay, I'll definitely link to that. And and yeah, thanks for mentioning the convention. The next one's actually going to be in May 2023 in in Orlando uh, during Division One, Two, II, and Three championships. So moving it from its typical December slot. So we'll be getting more information out to coaches later this summer. But last question, Todd, uh, when the day comes for you to retire, uh, what do you hope to be most proud of looking back on your coaching career?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think I'll ever retire. Um, from college tennis, uh, you know, I think I've chosen to live a life of service service to student athletes, service to my wife and service to my uh, son and my family. And in doing that, I don't, you know, I don't really see myself making, you know, six figure money uh, for the rest of my life. But, you know, even if I do reach a point where I could retire financially and not need to work, I'm still going to be a volunteer assistant somewhere, yeah. uh, you know, trying to remain involved in the college tennis process because it's just so fun. But what I'd be most proud of, to be honest with you, is I'm most proud when I see bridesmaids and groomsmen that were teammates at each other's weddings like Mm. i don't know what it is but that just makes me so proud it just shows me that like we did a good job of building a family
0: yeah well that's a great answer and great place to leave it todd thank you so much for all your time this morning and and good luck uh the last few weeks of the season
1: cool all good all good thanks david i appreciate you man